This is episode 30 of Cinescope. And they stole it from us. Sneaky little hobbitses. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and returning to the show today are Gabriel Green and James Hamrick to talk about one of our favorite films, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. How are you two doing tonight? Pretty good. I'm doing pretty well. Ready to start talking about this. I'm always ready to talk about Lord of the Rings. So. Definitely. Th- this episode is going to be kind of special because, one, it's the big 30. So we're, we've made it to a nice round number, uh, 30 episodes strong, pretty cool. And this is also the first time we're doing a sort of sequel episode. Uh, we've done we talked about sequels on the show before, like Toy Story 3, but we didn't talk about the first two beforehand. So this is our first time directly following up an episode with the sequel to the film we talked in the previous episode. So I think that's cool. And I think everybody can guess we are going to be coming back in the future to talk about the third film in this trilogy. So uh, just to refresh everybody's memory, how about you two introduce yourselves and tell us who you are and what you do and stuff like that. I'll let you go ahead, Gabe. All right. Uh, well, I am Gabriel Green. Um, I am one of the hosts of the Underrated Podcast, which uh, James is the other host. We've had you on once, Chad. Yes, sir. And we just talk about films we think are underrated. And we just, once a week, pick a film that we uh, we don't think it's enough love and just talk about why other people should like it. <laughs> okay. What about you, James? Well, obviously, very similar to Gabe. Uh, we started it. After we met on a Facebook group, um, just a bunch of people who get together and talk about movies, and we noticed that we both ended up liking a lot of the movies that typically got a lot of hate, and so it seemed like there's a whole lot of movies in the podcast landscape, or a whole lot of movie podcasts in the podcast landscape, but there it didn't seem like there was a lot about movies that were underrated. Most of the time, it's just it seemed like there was a whole lot that all seemed okay to just get together and talk about the movies that were universally agreed to be good and universally agreed to be bad. And so we thought it'd be cool to talk about movies that maybe, you know, a minority really appreciates. And it's, you know, it'd be nice to hear other people share that opinion. So it's been really fun. Uh, we enjoy having guests on like you. Uh, and People should go out and check that episode out as well. Yes, I talked with you guys about Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, and I'm still not sure if Gabriel has forgiven me for making him watch that movie, but I had fun with the episode. I hope you guys did too, and uh, looking forward to being on the show eventually, and of course, glad to have you guys back on my show. Thanks for having us back, man. Yeah, it's awesome. Thank you. Well, let's go ahead and... uh, cover our bases real quick so thanks to everyone again we made it to episode 30 thanks for sticking it out and i hope to see you guys listening for another 30 down the road please if you want that to happen if you want this show to continue to grow and get a bigger audience and continue uh, letting me and others make great content on cinescope please go to itunes take a couple minutes out of your day rate and review even subscribe and that's going to help us big time in finding new people so That aside, 
Let's go ahead and dive in, guys. We're going to talk about The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. This movie was released on December 18th of 2002 and was directed by Peter Jackson, who directed the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Hobbit trilogy, The Frighteners, King Kong, and The Lovely Bones. This film was written by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, Stephen Sinclair, and Jackson, and of course was based on J.R.R. Tolkien's second book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Two Towers. The music is composed by Howard Shore, who composed the scores for The Fly, Big, The Silence of the Lambs, Mrs. Doubtfire, Seven, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Aviator, The Departed, The Twilight Saga Eclipse, Hugo, The Hobbit trilogy, and most recently, Spotlight. This film stars much of the same cast from the first film, Elijah Wood, Ian McKellen, Liv Tyler, Viggo Mortensen, Sean Astin, Kate Blanchett, John Rhys Davies, Billy Boyd, Dominic Monaghan, Orlando Bloom, Hugo Weaving, Christopher Lee, and Andy Serkis, and features newcomers Bernard Hill, Miranda Otto, David Wenham, Brad Dourif, Carl Urban, among others. So... Uh, we, we've already gone over sort of our first experiences with the, the Fellowship of the Ring, and I imagine our feelings with this film and our first experience are going to be pretty similar. But let's go ahead and dive in. So how about, James, what was your first experience with The Two Towers? So after The Fellowship of the Ring came out and I fell in love with it, I was, I was never able to see it in the theater, so I just watched it on repeat when my older sister bought the DVD. And then whenever The Two Towers came around, because of how much I loved it, my parents decided that I was ready to go and see this in the theater. So I remember the first time we went to the theater and a storm hit. And so all of this waiting for this movie to come out, I show up and they close the theater down. So oh, I'm no. forced to wait. <laughs> I, I believe like half a week to a week later before we were all able to go out and see it again. So there was a lot of hype building up and, uh, this movie was what made me fall in love with seeing movies in the theater. Like, I already loved movies as a kid, but this was the first epic I had seen on the big screen. So one of my one of the memories that I remember the most is sitting in the theater next to my dad and my sister and seeing the giant elephants, the mumical, come through the trees on the big screen. It was like nothing I'd ever seen. And so I, do, I remember loving it in the theater, but that's that's probably the uh, the most clear memory I have of seeing it was just being in complete awe that that movies can look like this. Okay, what about you, Gabriel? I, I honestly don't remember the first time I saw it. I know, I think Fellowship and Two Towers were both out on DVD when I was introduced to the series, so they kind of, it's all meshed together, seeing both of them the first time. And it was just a, a constant part of uh, growing up. So I, I can't tell you about my first experience, but it was just it was very integral to uh, my childhood and my, and the the kind of stories I loved, and it definitely kind of birthed my fascination with filmmaking and, and desire to be a part of it. Okay, well, a lot of you may remember from the Fellowship episode that I was late to the Lord of the Rings game. I had this weird view of unwanted competition between Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings as a child. And so I just didn't watch them. I thought, nope, Harry Potter is better. I don't want the competition. So that's the franchise I'm going to stick with. And so I got around to Lord of the Rings finally in about college. 
I do have a vague recollection of maybe watching the first two on DVD while I was house-sitting for somebody sometime in high school, but the first real viewings I had where I was looking at the film as a lover of film and as somebody who looks at film critically in college, and just like the first film, it it's amazing. I fell in love with it. It's it, the the world is huge. the The craftsmanship is outstanding. The acting is top notch. The storytelling is top notch, and it's just all around a fantastic piece of cinema. I don't have any. I don't remember any sort of particular reaction to this film specifically uh, because it, you know it's the the middle film, and I likely consumed all three fairly close to one another. So I consumed the trilogy as a whole rather than in separate parts. But the the parts of this film that I think definitely stick out to me and probably stick out to you two as well and to most viewers are the Battle of Helm's Deep and then, of course, our, our first real introduction to Gollum, who uh, makes his sort of debut in this film after a brief appearance in the first film. So that's sort of my first impressions, what I remember about this film before diving into it deep. And uh, let's go ahead and talk about story, I suppose. I'll go ahead and start us off. So from the very first shot of this film, I need to reiterate that Jackson took Tolkien's world and made it real. At the very start of this film, we are zooming around the mountains above uh, Khazad-dûm. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Zooming around the mountains around Khazad-dûm as Gandalf is within getting ready to fight the Balrog. And I'm reminded that that's a place that I can go to if I so desired and had the money. I could go to that mountain and I could explore it and I could experience it just like these characters did because Jackson took these movies and took this universe and put it in hours. And that, that is so fantastic to me. It, it just feels like it grounds the world and makes it something that I can reach out and touch rather than something that's entirely fantastical. Yeah. The way Jackson uses uh, the natural locations in New Zealand is, is stunning it's so cr- crazy just how many beautiful locations of, of just varying uh, types of a landscape you have in New Zealand. And you go from like the crazy mountains to the windswept plains of Rohan to uh, then just the woods in Ithilien, uh, I think is what it's called where uh, Faramir is. But a- everywhere we go, it, it feels like we're a place we could visit, as you said, and most of the places we can. Exactly. It's something that I think that uh, Jackson did really well with this one was fellowship. It still feels very real world, but maybe less so than the two towers. Um, you know, we see the Shire, we see all of these, these you know, crazy places like Rivendell and Lothlorien in very fantastical settings. And then when we get to the, uh, the two towers, I feel like it helps to contextualize uh, those other places that those are a small part of what's being told to us by Tolkien originally, now by Jackson, that this is our world. You know, this is, it happened a long time ago, but you know, we're seeing these plains of Rohan. We're seeing these mountains that, you know, we already, like, these aren't giant trees with um, entire cities in them. This, this is stuff that, you know, we could read in history books. So I think it's really cool the way he structured it, which is also the way, obviously, Tolkien structured it to where we're introduced to all these fantastical settings. And then, as the fellowship moves on, we continue to see the greater part of Middle Earth, and it starts to look a little bit more familiar. And as myth, it starts to feel a little bit more believable that it could have been, you know, akin to 
the Romans or the Greeks and the way they incorporated mythology in their history. I also love the way that Jackson adapted the book here, because am I correct in assuming that all three of us have read The Lord of the Rings? Yes. I thought so. And that that's pretty cool because I don't think a lot of people can claim that, uh, or a lot of people talking about the films on a movie podcast are going to claim that they've read the books as well. So that that's a unique perspective from us. But you guys know that the Lord of the Rings books are actually more like volumes and each volume contains two books. So the way The Two Towers is constructed as written by Tolkien is in book three, because books one and two are in The Fellowship of the Ring. In book three, we're focused on the fellowship. So everybody but Frodo, Sam, and Gollum. And then book four, it basically starts over the timeline, and we pick up at the end of fellowship with Frodo, Sam, and Gollum. So you you read the same timeline twice from two different perspectives in the books. And so what Jackson has done is he's taken that and he's put them on top of each other. He's stacked them so that we're witnessing both of these timelines simultaneously. And it just makes it flow a little bit better. You're not having to worry about where this fits in with that. And and I, I think it just makes the, the movie going experience versus the book experience. I'm not saying that's a detriment to the book. I'm just saying that I love the way that it flows in the film. It's nice to be able to cut away from um Treebeer when he starts talking too much than <laughs> right, right. the whole time. Yeah, I think what works for books don't always translate on a film well. And I think this was adapted in just about the uh the best way possible. Cuz like you said it it would be very confusing, I feel like. I'm not sure apart from just text on the screen reminding the audience of the date, how you'd be able to tell an entire story and then go back in time and effectively have that come across to the audience. I think it'd, it'd be pretty confusing. So the way he did, he told everything linearly. Um, I think it actually helps the story flow really well, like you. Um, having so many different major events happening, it keeps any one particular thread from feeling too stale. Like Gabe said, anytime we get bored of one, oftentimes in the book it's Treebeard, in the movies we're able to cut back to something else. And so we always feel like we're continuing this journey. and We never really feel like we're getting bogged down with too much exposition regarding one singular event. Right. And like you mentioned, there are a lot of moving parts in this film. We've got the Frodo and Sam with Gollum traveling closer and closer to Mordor. And then you have the remainder of the Fellowship. So you have uh, Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn with Theoden of Rohan and the Rohirrim and Eowyn and the Battle of Helm's Deep and Gandalf eventually shows up again. You have all that going on. And then you have Merry and Pippin with Treebeard, basically. And so you have the, these three different settings. And as, as that progresses, they sort of intertwine here and there. And we're jumping back and forth between them. And there's a lot of moving parts in this film. But at no point do I think it feels too jumbled. I think that there's the, the pacing is exactly right when when we switch from one to the other. It's because it, it makes sense to switch at that point in time. Yeah, um, this is definitely a middle chapter. We have all the kind of the pieces moving into place for the grand climax. And I think uh, Jackson juggles all the... um different parts quite well what other parts of the story do you guys like i guess um the part that really uh stood out to me this this last rewatch was uh the, the way the character of Gollum was handled i mean first off it's just a fantastic uh character and like a kind of a landmark in cinema the way um jackson did it with uh, motion capture 
and uh, kind of put Andy Circus on the map. But uh, it's just so fascinating how the first time we, we see him, he's basically coming to murder our main characters. But he's also all revealed to be like a very deeply pitiful creature. And you have he's kind of bouncing back and forth between Frodo, who basically who wants to believe that he has a chance to redeem this character who's who's done a lot of horrible things. And Sam, who is pretty much like the most perfect human being you'll ever meet. And yet he doesn't believe that uh, Gollum should be given a chance of redemption. And I found it just fascinating how we are kind of thrown back and forth between these two different uh, competing ideas. And Frodo has to, has to essentially believe, he has to believe Gollum can be redeemed because he feels that he is slowly turning into what Gollum is now, just since he's had the ring for so long. And he he must believe that, uh, that uh, someone can come back to believe that he can be saved. And I find that idea very fascinating. And I think the way Tolkien handles it and the way Jackson uh, did it is to, there, we, there are no easy answers. Yes, Gollum has done evil things and he might not be trustworthy. But should we give show him mercy? And we have a character like Sam who is otherwise so good, who might be in the wrong in how he how he um mistreats Gollum. And then and we also get the idea of whether or not could Gollum have been saved. If he hadn't been betrayed and mistreated by Faramir's men, would his victory over his evil half earlier in the story have have continued? And I, I like how we really don't get the answer. It just gives us a lot to chew on. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of that. It's crazy to think that prior to Gollum, I guess the uh, the only full CGI legitimate character that we had, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, was Jar Jar. So it's it's impressive the leap between the two, that you can have this almost unprecedented performance and have it be such an important part of this story. And so much of the heart and themes of this film in particular all revolve around the character of Gollum. Uh, I think it's really well handled. Uh, but probably my favorite part of uh, of all of the moving pieces of this film has got to be following uh, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli. There's just something so fun about watching these three characters traverse the plains of Middle-earth. Anytime it shows them with, from the long shots, and the cinematography in this film is essentially perfect. It's, you know, across the whole trilogy, I think it's unparalleled by other movies. Um, but we, we just see these amazing long shots of them traveling across these mountaintops and the music just swells every time we cut to them. And it's, it's this chase between them and the Urukai and this triumphant music playing. And to me, it's, it's just incredible cinema. It's, it's the reason why we go to see him because it's just so much fun and it's got such a great sense of adventure when we cut to this aspect. And it's, it's my favorite part of the film to follow. I think I agree with you there, um, especially Viggo Mortensen, especially Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn. Man, he is just fantastic. He he brings so much emotional depth to this film because we have we have the storyline with him sort of struggling with his love for Arwen and her having to give up her mortality or immortality in order to be with him. And then you have Eowyn, who's introduced into his life, and I don't think he's necessarily tempted in that way, but but there is that that sort of mutual interest in each other going on at the same time, and you see the bond that they form, and then you have the the whole chunk of time when he falls off the cliff and he's having to recover, and he traverses himself all the way back to uh, Helm's Deep, and 
so th- there's there's all these things going on, all these moving parts within Aragorn himself. And he, he's definitely a fascinating character to to follow, and especially because of Mortensen's performance. Yeah, and I think he and the uh, the other two cast members, John Reese davies and Orlando Bloom, just had a really great chemistry together. Yeah. Like I said, it's just so much fun to watch them interact. Uh, you know, Legolas and Gimli's back and forth in Helm's Deep. It's probably still some of my favorite dialogue in films. And like whenever Aragorn does recover and he comes back to Helm's Deep, the uh the scene where Legolas meets him, you know, these are two actors who a less than a year ago didn't know each other and yet there's just this sense of you know, friendship and camaraderie and it feels like it's been there for, you know, years and years like it has been in the books. And I think it's because the actors were just really they really had, like I said, good chemistry together and they were really able to play to each other's strengths. Any other aspects of the story we want to talk about, or do we want to go ahead and move on to characters? There's one thing I do want to mention, where uh, Tolkien had kind of the the anthropomorphization, I think is the right word, <laughs> Yes, of uh, nature in the character of the Ents. Uh, that word should be outlawed. And uh, kind of Saruman has for, uh, forsaken his purpose and is violating the earth and how nature's guardians are coming for the reckoning and like Tolkien wasn't exactly an extreme environmentalist but I like how he does like raise the questions of you know the proper stewardship of the natural world and uh, he literally kind of juxtaposes Isengard and the Shire in the end of the Return of the King book and we have this a a balanced view where like the hobbits they have their place and they're they use and tame nature, whereas kind of Saruman, he just wants to consume everything in his drive for power. And I kind of like the thematic idea of just have, having nature being so horribly violated, just rising up and just sweeping the earth clean in the uh, like the last March of the End scene. Right. It's like nature having its revenge. It's definitely a satisfying scene. Yeah, that scene gives me goosebumps every time when the whoever it is who's who provides the vocals gives me chills. It's so good. Well, let's go ahead and talk about characters because I, that that's personally where I have most of my notes as well. So um, let's just start off with who we would argue probably are our protagonists. So Frodo and Sam. What do we have to say about Frodo and Sam? Love them. <laughs> like their story really comes to a head in the next film, but they do they get some great stuff to do in this one. You have Frodo who He's kind of the driving force in in that in that small group, and yet he's kind of weighed down by the ring. And then Sam, as I said before, is like one of the most perfect characters. And he, he's just such a pure person, and I, I love how whenever Frodo falters, he's just there to to pick him up and just to help him keep going on on this mission. Um, so just such a fantastic portrayal of a friendship. Yeah, it's crazy how much the dynamic has changed since the fellowship. Uh, it's, it's such a drastic change, and yet it feels incredibly natural. We see hints of the ring starting to begin to take its toll on Frodo and the fellowship, so that whenever it really begins affecting him in Two Towers, it doesn't feel like it came out of nowhere. But the audience, along with Sam himself, see this stark difference in Frodo between the two stories. And I think while both actors were as good as one could possibly be in the fellowship. I think that the two, uh, the two towers give them more to do, uh, in terms of acting. 
And I th- I think that for me they're probably my favorite film protagonists. You know, Sam always being there for Frodo. Like Gabe said, it's it's the perfect depiction of friendship, and um, you know it, it's modeled after the the World War One idea of an officer and his bat boy. Just the idea of that one person who's always there. Like it's their goal to protect and be with this other person, and it's just such a perfect depiction of that in this movie. And I think that the added element of Gollum ruins what would have, you know, you wonder what this what the story would have looked like had he not shown up. Because so much of the temptation that Frodo faces in this, and especially in the third film, is all introduced because of Gollum. Like obviously, the ring was still weighing heavy on him, but it's one thing. For for that to weigh heavy on him and have Sam there to, you know, be with him and comfort him and keep him from that sort of temptation with the ring. And now we have this other physical person there who's vocally tempting him. Uh, and even non-vocally, just the way he sees Gollum take to it, he begins to take to it this, uh, the same way. So their relationship, it's it's it grows in such a real but such a different way in this. And I think both actors, well, all three actors with Andy Serkis, um, make it one of the most interesting plots to follow. As you were talking about earlier, Gabriel, there's this struggle between whether Gollum should be trusted or not. And what I think is interesting is they, they Frodo tends to trust because of he, he has firsthand experience with how the ring affects you. But Sam distrusts Gollum for the same reason. He sees how the ring affects Frodo. And so even though they're approaching it from the same direction, they come out of it differently because, well, Frodo's the one with the ring around his neck. Um, and I, I think that's a, a fascinating way that the fact that the same reason makes him walk away with different perspectives. Yeah, It's just really good writing. I think that, you know, we, we have so many epics that people love. But to me, this one, I think characters are treated in the most mature and realistic and well-written and developed ways in this. And so, just like what you're saying, these two characters are given the exact same reasoning and come to completely different conclusions. And both conclusions feel natural and right for the the respective characters. It's also heartbreaking to see these characters conflict with each other in this way. Because even though they maybe don't necessarily start off as best friends, I mean, Sam is Frodo's gardener. You see over the course of the Fellowship of the Ring how close they become and this bond that they form with each other and dedicating themselves to each other. And then to see them, that that, that relationship sort of questioned in a way in this film at certain moments when the ring sort of overtakes Frodo and he lashes out. And the moment especially as Gilead towards the end of the film when Sam jumps at him to protect him from the Nazgul and then Frodo flips him over pulls out Sting and holds it to Sam's head. And you're thinking to yourself, no, no, Frodo, what are you doing? You can't do that. that that's Sam. And even Sam says, it's me. It's your Sam. And I think the, the fact that he says it's your Sam rather than just saying it's Sam shows that relationship. And it, it, it just breaks my heart even more watching uh, Frodo almost kill his friend because of something that's more or less out of his control. Yeah. And that's that scene also leads to possibly one of the best monologues in films ever with Sam at the stone window. Yes, and we will get to that speech later. <laughs> so uh, another, well, I guess th- my favorite human character, 
that is introduced in this film is uh, Bernard Hill as Theoden. Uh, first off, Bernard Hill is just fantastic. But what I love about his character is he's a, a noble, honorable king who has utterly failed at his job without even trying. Like, we don't know exactly how Wormtongue came into power in uh, uh, in Rohan or how he uh, came under the enchantment. But what's essentially happened is he he has been... Like, he's had this spell put on him where he's, like, completely useless, and his kingdom is just getting weaker and falling into decay, and threats are rising up, and he hasn't been there to lead. And now, all of a sudden, he's been freed just in time to watch his people be utterly destroyed. And I think kind of all the weight of the failure is on him, and I think Bernard Hill plays that really well, where he's just trying to—he desperately wants to do right by his people, but he has—he he, he basically he, he messed up really bad, and he's just trying to— do whatever he can to save Rohan, and I find that I find that the character fascinating, and just how how he's played. And if you think about it, he's a very tragic character, um, and I just find it interesting. I love Bernard Hill in this film, and it's funny because it's a very similar character to what he played in Titanic. He played the captain of the ship, and uh, in a very similar turn of events, he has failed. There's this moment in Titanic where he is just sort of standing at the mantle and he has basically given up because the situation is hopeless. And we see him in that moment in this film when he is standing in Helm's Deep, their defenses are all but shattered and he has given up. We see it and he basically says as much, but then Aragorn steps in and says, you know, let's go out with a bang. Let's, let's go out protecting your people with all of our might for Rohan. And then he he sort of livens up and he says, you know, you're right. I'm going to be the king that my people need right now. And whether we fail or whether we succeed, we are going to go out protecting my people. And I I, I love that sort of turn of events uh, at the end of the film. He's one of the most emotionally compelling characters in the film, I think. And Bernard Hill plays him with such such a weight, like when you see him move and speak, just the way he holds himself and speaks with others, he's, he feels like a man with the weight of his entire people on his shoulder, and he's just now finally back to his right mind, and he, like y'all said, he feels like he's failed everybody, and so there's just almost this weariness and pessimism that clouds his character, and the way he plays it is just so well. It never, it never feels like acting. It just, it feels like this was a real person. This was a historical event where this king almost really did give up on his people and was, you know, convinced to take up, you know, arms for what could have been, you know, one last battle. But Bernard Hill just plays the part so perfectly throughout. Right, and even in his low moments, Hill just has this sort of natural nobility that exudes from him, even even when he's not maybe putting forth that that true kingly air when he is about to give up. You you see the king in him, you believe him as king, and you you can understand after all he's been through, after going so long with his mind poisoned by Grimma Wormtongue and Saruman, and all this time wasted and not witnessing and being there for his son at, at, in his, the final moments of his life, and not being there for Eowyn as uh, her uncle the way he should be when she's parentless 
you, you see all that go through him. But even in those moments when he's at his lowest, you, you sense his kingliness. And I think that's one of Bernard Hill's big strengths. And something else just about him in particular, but also about Aragorn and about Gandalf and about um, the leaders of the elves. I love that this is a world that that harkens back to the idea of the leaders going into battle with their people and not even just going into battle, but leading the charge, getting on the front lines and and sacrificing every bit as much as they're asking their citizens to sacrifice. I, I, I just I love that notion. I love that aspect of leadership. Like if you're if it's the idea that if you're going to ask somebody to do it, you need to be do- willing to do it yourself. And I think that's a, a fantastic thing that uh, Theoden does, Aragorn does, Gandalf does when he shows up at Helm's Deep. And uh, it, it's just a really cool cultural thing that used to happen in real world scenarios, but really doesn't happen so much anymore. And they gave great speeches while they were at it. <laughs> yeah, you can see kind of Tolkien hearkening back to like the old ideas of nobility um you could tell he, he really loved like medi- especially medieval the medieval time period and he wrote his leaders to kind of characterize the the best parts of that that that, that system and then uh like what you were saying about the cultures uh this kind of goes back to the almost the setting but i think jackson uses these different cultures these different races to about as good of effect as can be done because they feel like real cultures. It, none of this feels like it was made for a movie or adapted from a book. It felt like this happened. And so when we see Halder um, come to their aid at Helm's Deep with the elf army, we feel like we're we're watching an event of historical significance. And obviously one of the main reasons for that is, you know, obviously the, the product design or the production design, costume design, as well as actors like Bernard Hill and Viggo Mortensen and Ian McKellen, who play these incredibly believable leaders. James, do you have any other characters that you wanted to mention? Or I could just work down my list, either way. Well, there, there are two characters in particular. Um, and I think these these characters probably best, for me, encapsulate what I think is proof that Jackson cares about characters first and foremost. And that's Merry and Pippin. They were mainly comic relief characters in The Fellowship. and a lot of directors would have probably left him at that throughout this whole trilogy. But what, what started out as these two just tension-breaking characters morphs into something completely different in The Two Towers, where they're, they're still very much the same characters, but they're not being thrown aside at all in, this, in the grand scheme of things. They are given a huge amounts of character depth and character motivation, and Jackson gives them so many scenes to genuinely act. Uh, which is crazy considering they're acting next to a giant tree puppet. But it, it all feels believable. And our understanding of those two as characters by the end of The Two Towers is completely different than how it was at the beginning of it. I Obviously, I love them in Fellowship. But you see this naive and innocence in Pippin and this desire to just see things go back to the way they were. And it says a lot about his character. And then you see this nobility in Mary that wasn't present in the first one this idea that you know we signed up for this this we're going to see it through we're not going to be cast aside if our friends are going to face death and we're going to face it with them and it's just it's so much character growth for characters that could have been of such little significance 
Yeah, and regarding Merry and Pippin also, that they're trying to convince Treebeard and the other Ents that this affects them too. Whether they want to or not, they can ignore it. But eventually the fight's going to come to him. Merry and Pippin can ignore it. They can go back to the Shire now if they wanted to. They have an easy path home. But if Sauron is victorious, then guess what? The Shire is still going to burn. So I, I love that they explore that aspect of the story. We get a little bit of that with the elves later too. And with uh, Aragorn and Legolas versus Rohan and all those kind of things. But Merry and Pippin is where really where it brings it home. And it, it they show us that this involves everybody. This is in Middle-earth. Are you a resident of Middle-earth? Check. This affects you. And you ought to have a hand in the outcome. And I... I agree with you. I think that's a really powerful aspect of the film. And I think, you know, there's that great scene that is exactly what you're talking about. And it's, there's some subtle acting in it, but I think it's just so good uh, between Dominique Monaghan and Billy Boyd, where Pippin lets his desire for the way things were and his longing for home kind of speak for him. And so he says, Mary, like, you know, what good are we? This, this is bigger than us. Let's go back to the Shire. And Mary kind of being the one who who has the ability to see the, the bigger picture says, you know, he, he describes in vivid detail what would happen. You know, the, the, the woods of Buckland would burn and all that is good and green will be gone. And he says there won't be a Shire and he fully understands what's happening. And he says it with such intensity and he leaves and Pippin is just floored. And you just, the reaction on his, on Billy Boyd's face feel so real and genuine that that moment has legitimate weight um, in this three-hour movie about giant battles that these this conversation between these two small characters who are so far removed from the main other two storylines it has legitimate bearing on the emotion of the film yeah and i like that they they don't even though uh mary gets a lot of the uh a lot of the epic speeches they still allow Pippin to serve a role in where he's he's the one who gets Treebeard to go and see what Saruman's been doing to his to his forest. So they they both get their part to play. Right. Now let's go ahead and talk about another pair. Um, we don't have to linger on them because I don't think there's a whole lot to say. But Legolas and Gimli, when we talked about Fellowship of the Ring, we talked about how these two characters really didn't serve much of a purpose in that first film, at least. Um, they were there. They were part of the Fellowship. They had their share of fight scenes, maybe. But there wasn't a whole lot of character growth for those two. But here, we see how they have progressed. We, we see how antagonistic they are at the start of Fellowship. And here, they're very getting to that buddy-buddy kind of state. They're sharing a horse together. They're having kill contests at the Battle of Helm's Deep. They they have this fun back and forth that you mentioned earlier, James. And they they are just forming this bond that that goes beyond that goes across races, first off. And then you also see that same affection that they're starting to build for each other reach out to Aragorn as well. When when Aragorn disappears after falling off the cliff and they think him possibly maybe even probably dead and when aragorn returns first he sees gimli at the at the entrance of helm's deep and gimli has this hugely genuine reaction and aragorn returns returns that affection and then when when they're preparing for battle legolas has this sort of passionate outcry towards aragorn saying these people don't have a chance why are we trying 
we're basically sending them out for slaughter. And then soon after, after he sort of cooled down, he says, Aragorn, you haven't let us wrong yet. I put my trust in you. I'm sorry. And then Aragorn responds back in Elvish, which I think is important, that there was no need to apologize. We are we are brothers. We're we're one in the same. And I don't take a offense to what you said because our relationship, our bond is that strong. And so that that trio is so cool in in that they're continuing the fellowship. Yeah, there's it's just a great dynamic between all of them and it's definitely some much needed humor. Um, we get from the, the the friendly rivalry between uh, Legolas and Gimli during the Battle of Helm's Deep. Uh, it, it helps in the midst of all this darkness to know that people people are they're still they're they're at least enjoying themselves. Yeah, uh, as a Star Wars fan, I say this, this is the greatest trio in movies, in my opinion. <laughs> but it, it's so cr- I watch all all three of these movies back to back now. Uh, it, it's somewhat difficult for me to separate the two and so whenever we say thing you know you say things like there they didn't really serve a, a whole lot of story purpose and there wasn't a lot of development and fellowship my instant reaction is i know these characters so well and i think oh no no i i watch it and i see but that's because i watch it with the entire trilogy in my mind whereas you know watching it with fresh eyes their role in fellowship is less to be actual characters and more more to give insight into their particular races. Um, I mean, they get great character moments, but John Rhys Davies is there to explain the culture of dwarves to the viewer. And Legolas is there to help explain that the culture of elves and elves in general don't like dwarves or anything about their culture. And it's great for that movie, but then once that's established in Fellowship, they are fully developed in the Two Towers, and these are legitimate characters that go on actual arcs and have great emotional scenes and dialogue. And so it like just like with Merry and Pippin, it's great to see these somewhat minor characters in the first one be fully developed and not in any way forgotten. What about Aragorn, Gabe? He's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be him during most of my teen years. <laughs> I mean, just the kind of the, the picture of quiet nobility and He's pretty awesome with the sword too. Yeah, I, I think he in the role is pretty much perfection. He's, you say you want to be. I, I mean, I still want to be Viggo Mortensen in that role. <laughs> he's, he's, he's the perfect king. He, he just has that air and sense of nobility around him, even when he doesn't want to be king. He has such a natural feeling of leadership about him that it's something he can't escape. And Viggo Mortensen just exudes that idea. He's the best version of the reluctant hero, where, I said it before, like the Fellowship Review, he, he he's not uh, walking away from the kingship to mope. He's doing it for the right reasons, and he's still acting and being as active as he can in this war and doing all he can in spite of kind of his fears and like all of that about the character, the way he kind of, he helps guide uh, Rohan since Theoden's been out of the picture so long, he kind of instantly steps up and to not to like uh, usurp um, Theoden's place, but to just help guide them through through this war. Yeah, what I love about Aragorn is that he struggles internally mostly with his love for Arwen, with his lack of desire to be king because of his fear of corruption. And then after 
seeing those internal struggles and seeing him in these cutaways and in these dream sequences where he's confronting Arwen or Arwen's confronting him or uh, Elrond is confronting him when he's put in a leadership position or when he's given the opportunity to be a leader, he just snaps into it automatically. It's, it's an instinct for him. It's natural for him. And that's how he's able to help Theoden come into his own so easily because when he is given the opportunity to lead people and to inspire people and to do work for the greater good, it just is so easy for him because it's who he is as a character. But just because it's easy for him doesn't mean he doesn't have those internal struggles. And so I, I love that that conflict within the character on the inside and on the outside. Yeah, another, another character I really love, who he's actually dead in this film, but I, he gets a whole bunch of character development, is a Boromir. Actually, in the extended edition, we get that scene of, of him in, after the retaking of Osgiliath, and we see him leading troops and then like interacting with his brother and then like even how he stands up to his father when uh th- when uh, uh what's his name denethor denethor yeah, when, De- when denethor is being particularly horrible to faramir he, he he stands up for his brother and we see that in just those like that one scene we see this really wonderful bond between Boromir and faramir and how he, he we just see how how much of a noble character Boromir is and it makes rewatching fellowship so much more uh impactful when he when he he kind of when he falls and then when he sacrifices himself and i i love that we get this scene yeah i think it even adds to the 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 tragedy of the character we talked about the tragedy of boromir in our fellowship episode but it's it's added to here because we see how even beyond a good person that he was we see him standing up for his little brother we see him sharing his victory with his brother and with the people of gondor when when they they reclaim osgiliath and so it, it just makes that more tragic that he fails that he does give in to the temptation of the ring and it even adds more weight to when faramir is able to do what boromir couldn't and turn down the ring and send Frodo on the path back to Mordor. It's really frustrating to see the way some people treat Boromir as a character, almost treating him as if, if he died an antagonist still. kind of. I see a lot of people still attaching a negative connotation, but to me, he's not only one of my favorite characters of this trilogy, but just in film in general. I think he captures the idea of that the everyman, the guy who just wants to do good, and unfortunately, he does fall to temptation, but with this film, it it does, like y'all said, just make make those scenes in Fellowship and his ultimate demise so much more tragic because we see that he is a good man in his dying moments in Fellowship, but we we don't really see the extent of how genuinely noble and good he is until we see this. We see him as a perfect military leader leading his troops and celebrating with his troops and bonding with his younger brother and and in any way he can, giving his younger brother as much credit as possible, as, like y'all said, standing up to the king in defense of his younger brother. And then it's, it's such a great last shot we see of him where Faramir looks up to him and Boromir says, you know, remember this day, little brother. And he's wearing the same suit that we see him arrive in in Fellowship. It's just such a perfect way to bring his character full circle. The last character I have on my list is Eowyn, who... Uh we get especially a lot more of in the next film, 
But here we sort of see the seeds planted where she has lost her parents. She relies on Theoden as a father figure, despite Grimma Wormtongue poisoning his mind for the, the, the start of it. And she, because of these circumstances that have been thrust upon her, she has this sort of heightened sense of right and wrong and this desire to prove herself beyond what is expected normally of a woman in this culture, which is cook clean, take care of the kids, that kind of stuff. She wants to prove herself as a warrior. She wants to basically prove herself capable of anything a man can do. And I think that's admirable in her character. And at the same time, we see the sort of tenderness from her as she more or less falls in love with Aragorn and sees she, she, she witnesses or she, she realizes Aragorn's age and then finds out that Aragorn sort of has a woman for himself already. And we, we see her struggle with that while also struggling with the expectations of her and this desire to prove herself. Yeah. And uh, Miranda Otto is very, very, very good as the character. It's weird. Uh, I see most, most people agree that the cast is pretty much pitch perfect across the board, but it's weird. Anytime um, someone picks out a weak link, link, it's almost always uh, Miranda Otto. And I just really disagree with that. I think that as a character, there is so much acting chops that are required to make this character believable and feel real because there's so much emotional weight attached to her. Like you said, she's she's struggling to still not just be a horrible pessimist in the midst of all of this, but she lost her parents. Her brother has been banished. Her only father figure is poisoned and out of his mind, and she's trying to remain composed and help in a way lead her people and there's a much like Denethor there's just this emotional weight that you feel almost physically anytime you see her character just the way she carries herself and she speaks in her demeanor it's just you can tell that like her father she too feels the weight of Rohan on her shoulders because she sees what the leader who the leader is and how he's failing and she almost takes it upon herself to to take on these leader-like qualities. And I think Miranda Otto is just really, really great in the role. She actually made me emotional at one point in the movie, um, which is after Theoden has come out of his darkness and they are burying his son, Theodrid, I think. And she sort of sings this lament as he's being placed in the, the, the grave or the crypt. And in that moment, I, I was sort of overcome with emotion just a little bit because of the, the, the emotion present in her voice. It was a really powerful moment to me. And that's not the only moment in the film where I really connected with sort of the, the pain and the torment that she was going through. Anyways, any other characters before we move on? I, I did want to briefly mention uh, Faramir. This is a character that a lot of the book fans complain about because essentially in the book, he's just super noble and he doesn't hold on to Ferdinand Sam uh Basically, after he finds out why they're there, he lets them go. Um, I personally prefer the uh, the film version a bit more. I think the way we are given the, the father son dynamic between him and Denethor, where he's he desperately wants to prove himself for his fa- to his father, and he's also faced with the laws of Gondor, and he sees something that may that 
first and foremost will help him with his father and also may be the weapon they need to defeat the enemy. And I like that the, the film presents us uh, with a struggle in his character about which way to go, whether to let them go or to, to bring this weapon back to his people. And I think David Wenham uh, plays the character very well. Uh, and his kind of his connection to Boromir immediately lets us uh, into his into him as a character and just his interactions with uh, Frodo and Sam and how once he, he he decides to let them go, kind of the, the responsibilities that feels for their safety when he, he threatens um Gollum if he ever betrays them. I, I just I just I love him as a character and I think that added drama connects him that much more to to the viewers. In the books, the character of Faramir is the second person between he and Tom Bombadil, who essentially show complete resistance to the ring's power. And so not to criticize Tolkien's writing, but I do think that kind of diminishes the idea of the ring and the fact that even the seemingly best of us have the ability and the uh, the capacity to fall prey to its temptation. And so it it works in the book, I think, pretty well. But like Gabe said, in this, it it feels more in line with what we've been told and presented about the ring uh, and about this character that this this character who all his life has wanted to prove himself to this father, he he's presented with this opportunity to do so. And for a huge portion of the movie, he's leading us to believe that that's exactly what he's doing. And, you know, he's convinced that this is what he's going to do. And I think that by having his character be convinced of that and essentially oppose Frodo and Sam for so much of the film makes the moment where he does, where he says, you know, I, I think you and I understand each other now. It makes that moment to me more impactful than it, than it would have been had Faramir just essentially said, Oh, I don't want this ring. You know, I'll help you. Yeah. What's fascinating about him is that struggle. He, he has this opportunity to essentially finally gain his father's favor he he's lived his whole life overshadowed by Boromir, despite Boromir's efforts to give him credit. And when he's given this opportunity on a golden platter to give his father the ring of power, Sauron's weapon, he he's given that option. And he says, I would rather be remembered positively in history than positively by my father, is basically the decision he's making. Um, because it's him releasing Frodo and Sam and Gollum and sending them on their way and allowing them to complete their task that that enables the next movie. Whereas if Frodo and Sam had been overturned and the ring had been taken from them by the steward of Gondor, then likely the war would have been lost. Man would have taken over the ring or would have been captured by Sauron or something like that. Things would have gone wrong, basically. So you're right, guys. It's it's the that conflict where he has the choice between doing the right thing or doing the thing to finally gain the favor of his father. And uh, he makes the right choice. I know we're wanting to move on. I had two last characters that I, I wanted to mention just really quickly. Okay. And that is our uh, our two chief villains in this. Um, Grima Wormtongue, Adam Durif, or uh, Brad Dourif, sorry, is fantastic in this role. Just this kind of slimy henchman uh, who's pulling the strings on behalf of our main villain. He plays that role so well. He's so creepy and eerie and unsettling. And yet, 
in a weird way, really sympathetic. And he's very visually distinctive. He's he's a memorable character. And I think that he serves a, a really important purpose for this film because Saruman is our, our main villain, our primary villain, but he's he's completely removed physically from the main story, at least in regards to our heroes. He's an Orthanc for almost the entirety of the film. And so I think it's really important to have a physical presence be felt of the antagonist and Brad Dourif plays that part to perfection with Wormtongue. Something to just briefly touch on that I hadn't noticed before was when Saruman is preparing for the attack on Helm's Deep and Wormtongue is saying, you know, you're going to need at least an army of 10,000 or whatever the number is. And he said, that's impossible to amass that many so quickly. And then they look out and boom, there's 10,000 soldiers, 10,000 fighting Urukai. And there's a tear that runs down his face. Did you guys notice that? Yeah. Yeah. What do you guys think that tear means? Do you think it's maybe a, a tear signifying regret? Or do you think it's just maybe awe? Or what do you think that tear means? Because I hadn't noticed it before. I always thought it was just like, the wind from all the Urukai like drying out his eyes or something. <laughs> I always got that it was a sense of awe that he he steps outside and he sees this and I mean it's not tears of joy or sadness. It's just that's the way he reacted to seeing something this huge and massive, something that he could have never seen, something that's unprecedented for him to step out of this tower. And look down at this army that he, he's not in command of, but he's, you know, the second in command. And I think it really hits him in that moment of what he's a part of. That he's he's part of the primary antagonist of an entire land, all of Middle Earth. And so it, it just hits him. And that that's what I've always gathered from that. I would like to sort of think that it, it's maybe a small twinge of regret. Because I don't think he was always evil. I, I mean, he had to be corrupted by Saruman at some point, right? So maybe pre-corruption, he was loyal to Rohan and was a, a valuable servant to Theoden. And now he is obviously banned from Rohan. He's done horrible things. He's now working for Saruman directly. And he has given Saruman the answer to take down Helm's Deep. All you have to do is you have to find this this little sewage grate, and that's the weak spot in the wall. But don't worry about it, because you're, you're not going to have enough troops to make this happen. And then they overlook the armies, and oh, you do have the armies. Maybe I regret a tiny bit what I'm about to... The, 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 the damage that I'm about to cause to these people that I used to dedicate myself to. That may be a wrong interpretation. I don't know. It's just sort of something that I hadn't noticed before and uh, an interesting concept that I thought of. Yeah, I had never thought about it that way, but I think there is credibility to it, especially given the uh, the opening scene of the extended edition of Return of the King, where Theoden recounts Wormtongue's time in Rohan positively. He says, you know, come down, Wormtongue, you were once a man of Rohan. Leave Saruman. You know, he's almost not worthy of your present you were so much better than what you are now so it it seems to be implied that there was a time where Wormtongue was significantly different and so even though that's not an interpretation that I've ever thought of 
uh, I don't think it's out of the picture that that could be what that tear is meant to signify. Right. It's sort of like uh, Peter Pettigrew or Wormtail in Harry Potter, who gravitates to Voldemort because Voldemort has power. And Wormtail has always been gravitated to people of power. That's why in school, he hung around with James and Sirius and Lupin. And uh, eventually that that love for people, powerful friends corrupted him. And he has this regret later on in the series. And uh, I'm not going to spoil anything regarding that in case there's somebody living under a rock who doesn't know the story of Harry Potter. It's me. But the, it's, it's a similar character. So anyways. And I have to believe that was an intentional parallel with their names. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> um, but let's let's talk about the music a little bit. So Howard Shore is back in full force, proving that he is the master. And uh, we have all the best returning themes. We have the fellowship theme. We have the ring theme. We have the, the elves or Rivendell theme. We have uh, the Urukai. We have all these great returning themes. Um which I love. I, I, it's the same thing that John Williams does with Star Wars, where you introduce these themes and you expand upon them or you revisit them based on what happens in the future films. And at the same time, you add new ones to account for new characters, new settings, etc. So probably my new, my, my favorite new theme for this film is the, the Rohan theme or the Theoden theme, however you want to think about it. So uh, what about you guys? What are, what are some of your favorite themes or musical moments or anything like that in this movie i would say that uh, i'd probably agree with you the the rohan theme is just sheer epicness it's such an amazing theme and to talk about specific moments is whenever we we first hear that whenever uh gandalf has been met and they're on their horses and the shot of them on this open plain heading to edoras and we hear the rohan theme play at least in full for the first time as we see this kingdom approaching and it's just a such a perfect cinematic moment the theme the king of the golden hall is it's also my favorite uh the, of the new themes it it just matches so well with the kind of the cold windswept uh, landscape of rohan um this really kind of sad violin solo that plays um makes me want to cry every time i hear it Right. It it has these simultaneous feels of both sadness and maybe yearning a little bit, but also the the full nobility of Theoden, like w whenever he is basically thawed and rescued from Saruman's grasp, we get a fantastic iteration of that theme. And it at that moment, it sounds warm and inviting and, like I said, regal and noble. And uh, I, I love how Shore is able to take these themes and manipulate them to maybe give it a different character at different parts of the film. I was actually speaking with a friend um, earlier today, ironically enough, about how impressive it is whenever a composer is able to take a singular theme and do so much with it. Uh, I, I think music is an incredibly important part of film. Uh, it, it helps the audience know what they're supposed to be feeling at this part of the movie and this theme brings us through almost every emotion like you said it there's a sense of sadness and yearning for the past and almost decrepitness at some times and then you know a few scenes later it fully encompasses just grand majesty and kingliness and nobility and it's the same theme but Howard, like you said, Howard Shore just manipulates it 
in so many different ways where he's he's just using one one melody to help the audience along the emotional journey and yeah it, because of that I, I think it is the primary new theme of the film and that's my favorite but there are a few other moments that i think are just fantastic musical moments um one of them is this the scene that i mentioned earlier where the it's the last march of the ents when the vocals come in and the shot just widens and we see all of the ints coming out i get goosebumps i almost get goosebumps just thinking about it in my mind it's like what i said about uh the shot of them approaching Edoras. It's just another moment in this film of pure, unfiltered, cinematic perfection. It's such a great moment. Yeah, that was my other uh, favorite musical moment. But just the whole score, it, it just, I love how Shore uses music just as kind of announcing characters or locations and, or just to, build suspense like the last half of this film is just this constant building of tension and the music um or lack thereof is really powerful and uh another moment i, I don't know if it's exactly a theme but the music during the uh the scene in the dead marshes as uh Frodo and sam and Gollum try to get across the swamp it's just this really spooky creepy atmosphere that uh he's able to invoke it and uh, it really i really stood out to me this time there's there's a whole lot that can be said about Howard Shore and his music for these films, because I, I would definitely say that the his work on the Lord of the Rings trilogy specifically is would be his magnum opus. It is like the pinnacle of his career. Um, it it is just a masterwork of music composition. And what blows my mind about these extended editions, because that is what we're watching for these these discussions, is that he completely rescored and re-recorded the entire score the entire for the entire film so rather than piecemeal existing music into the new scenes and the the new content he just says nope going to do it all over again and then re-recorded it and so if if you're somehow able listeners to get a hold of the complete editions of the scores they are definitely worth checking out because there is so much music and you get the full extended edition musical experience so let's go ahead and move on to our final section and talk about the relevance of this film. And I think that all three of us sort of have the same basic takeaways. So how about James, you go first. I think there's a lot that can be said about the themes of this movie. One of them Gabe kind of touched on earlier, which is the idea of wrongly utilizing our stewardship of the world, uh, using it, solely as a resource as opposed to something to upkeep and while he wasn't this full-blown environmentalist he Tolkien cared deeply for the environment he exemplified that with a uh, treebeard treebeard is is a guardian of the natural world and so he I feel like very clearly portrays overt and excessive industrialization at the cost of the environment as a bad thing that it's it's fine to use what we have here, but we always have to examine the cost. And when you have some character like Saruman, who at once cared very much for the environment, and is now so goal-minded, so he's got this this idea, this goal that he's working towards, and he's using anything and everything. And so with little concern 
for the natural world. He's just ripping down everything for this, you know, the machine of industrialization. And I think that oftentimes themes like that, we see it a lot in movies. And I think so many times they're just so heavy handed. I, I feel like I'm being beaten over the head with a message. Whereas here it feels it feels like it makes so much sense within the context of this movie. You might even say it feels organic. <laughs> ah, see, that, that's why you host the podcast. That's a great, but I mean, it is exactly that. It feels like it makes sense within this world because our heroes, you know, they're, they're, they live in the ground. The earth is such an important part. Bilbo even says in the first one, uh, uh, I, I think the line is something where our heart truly lies is in things that grow. Uh, and I think that was Tolkien. That was that was him speaking at that part. And so to see that in the movie, I think, is, is really cool. And it, it's really refreshing to see it done in a very mature way that doesn't feel uh, like it comes at the expense of the actual story. Well said. What about you, Gabe? Another thing that stood out to me is, is the recurring theme of mercy that we see all throughout Tolkien's writings. But in here, you, you have a Gollum and then Wormtongue, where we have these undeniably evil creatures, and yet the characters continually, repeatedly show them mercy and offer them a chance. And interestingly enough is that a lot of the time, these characters who are shown mercy go back to doing evil things for a time, and yet good still comes of it. I think you see kind of Tolkien's idea of providence and good being ultimately rewarded all throughout his writings. And I think that's no more uh, evident than in the, uh, the ideas of mercy we see. I agree. Um, now, the sort of all-encompassing kind of theme that I was talking about earlier or referencing earlier was that the idea that fighting for the good in the world, even in the face of danger, is always the right thing to do. You have Aragorn fighting for Rohan at Helm's Deep, despite the odds, 300 versus 10,000, there's no way. But they pull it off with some help, but it's only because they, they took the chance at standing up for what they thought was right. Frodo and Sam continuing their journey towards Mordor in order to rid the world of this great evil. Frodo's getting weighed down constantly, and he's, he's being slowly corrupted by the evil in this ring. But he continues to press on because it's the right thing to do. And then you have the Ents, who are fighting at Isengard, along with Merry and Pippin, because, as, as you were talking about, James, Saruman has shown a complete disregard for nature and has used it purely as a resource rather than respecting it. And so the trees, or the Ents, sorry, are, are taking their revenge at Isengard and showing that they're not okay with how their brethren have been destroyed. And along with this idea of fighting for the good, there's the idea that we talked about earlier where war affects us all. Whether you are directly involved in the conflict or not, it's going to circle back somehow. And you are going to have to take a stand at some point. And so I... I Th th those are the sort of takeaways that I took. Are, are there any other relevance before I sort of close off this section with a speech? <laughs> I, I do want to mention, talk about that speech, so you, you can go ahead and read it. Okay, so this speech is probably the speech from the entire trilogy, the one that's probably most quoted. It's maybe 
there are a couple of great ones in Return of the King as well. There are a couple of great ones in Fellowship of the Ring. But this is the one that I at least generally think of when I think of Lord of the Rings speeches. And so this is from Sam to Frodo at Osgiliath. And I'm just going to read the whole thing. So I hope you like it. I know it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger, they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you. That meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. So, what do we have to say about that? I think it, it essentially lays out why I love these films. I mean, the kind of the ultimate good versus evil tales. And, you know, Sam is talking about the stories that stood out to him and mattered at growing up, the ones that kind of shape him into who he is today. And I think that's, you know, it's why stories, why the Lord of the Rings or stories like this are important. Um, they kind of remind us of what is true, what's worth fighting for. Uh, to quote G.K. Chesterton, he says, Fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. And, I think that that's where the value in this this film series and fiction as a whole can lie is that no matter they can tell remind us that no matter how dark the world gets like there is always hope there is good and it can in the end defeat evil and um I always find that very inspiring I think as far as movie speeches go this probably tops the list I I think of any speech in the whole series this is the one that best captures Tolkien's ideas and feelings about good and evil. And, you know, a lot of the time Tolkien will be described as a somewhat pessimistic person, but you can look to his work and you can see what he thought was important. And it's this idea that you mentioned that there is good and it's like, like Sam said, it's worth fighting for. And so it's, it's great to see the themes that are so present throughout all of his work, summed up in such an emotionally powerful speech. I think it's one of the highlights of the trilogy. Right. I think that speech can really sort of be boiled down to its essence and say, bad things exist in the world, and they're going to continue to exist unless good people act out. That's what we have here. We have Aragorn and company acting out to protect the people of Rohan. You have, as I said, you have... Frodo and Sam going out to rid the world of the evil of the One Ring. As long as there are good people in the world doing good good things, then evil isn't going to win. The bad people won't win. And I think that's a great way to close off this discussion. What are what are our final thoughts of this movie? James. For me, uh it's really hard to decide the order of my favorites of this trilogy. I just kind of look at it as one big story, but with this film in particular, I think 
it's pretty much a perfect second chapter. There, there's no instance of a character feeling like they got shortchanged in the sequel, and it's pretty much the exact opposite of that across every single character. Every character who is great in Fellowship continues to be great here, and characters that were more minor are fully fleshed out and developed here. Everything that worked in Fellowship is back. The music is amazing. Um, and, and the speech that we just talked about, to me, is the perfect example of why these movies, to me, are my, are my favorite movies. We have so many tales of good versus evil, but to me, this movie perfectly captures the most pure form of good versus evil. And I think that's greatly captured in this second chapter in particular of the trilogy because it it's so dark. There's so much bleakness and lack of hope or seeming lack of hope in this film. We've got these farmers and these people who have never fought before facing this army. And yet in spite of that, they do good. And so the production design and set design, everything about this movie is perfect. But that's just added bonus to the fact that thematically I think this movie is just perfectly executed and every message and theme and idea that Tolkien and Jackson wanted to get across get across perfectly in this film. Okay, Gabriel? Yeah, it's really difficult for me to kind of separate my opinions of these films because they, 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 they're all one cohesive story and each one builds off the last one. And so this is a middle film, and it is, it's my least favorite of the films, but that doesn't mean much. I mean, I love them all, and this one, it just it, it does what sequels need to do. It expands the world. We're, we're introduced to this incredible kingdom of Rohan and all these fantastic characters. As we talked about, the relationships between the characters deepen. You know, kind of the lines are drawn. Everything is set up, and, and kind of the story has progressed where it needs to go. And then you know, the themes of the speech... And also, we barely even talked about it, but it has one of the greatest battle sequences of all time. For sure. With, with Helm's Deep. Um, which you, you could do a whole podcast just talking about that battle and how <laughs> beautifully it's constructed. But just, yeah, from a filmmaking standpoint, it's always impressive. It set a new precedent for film in general, but fantasy film in particular. Just fantastic films, and that's why they are my favorite films of all time. Same with James. There's not much more that I can say that hasn't already been said, but what it boils down to, I think, you know, the first film, Fellowship of the Ring, was about how the introduction of the ring and the the rise of power of Sauron affected the Fellowship, this small group of people. This is how their lives were sort of turned upside down by this evil force. And then this movie takes and shows how this evil has affected the world at large, how Middle-earth is affected by the rise of Sauron and the reintroduction of the Ring of Power. And I was telling Gabe before we got started that compared to Fellowship of the Ring, I got so much more emotional while watching this film, mostly because of the death toll. Speaking specifically of the Battle of Helm's Deep, it was difficult for me to watch because this, this small force of, as they mentioned, mostly older people and younger people. There's not a whole lot of people in the middle there who are sacrificing their lives for the greater good to protect their women and children and save their people and save their future. And that that really hit hard with me. It was hard to watch all these people getting slaughtered, even though they were victorious in the end. 
it was at a high cost. And so, um, that that's sort of what sums up this film for me. It, it's a more emotional film than the first one, I think. But like you guys were saying, it's hard to separate as a whole because the trilogy is a trilogy. And since it was all filmed at the same time and it was released within a short period of time of each other and because I came to the series late in the game and basically just watched them all at the same time, it's very much just one cohesive story for me. But just taking the first film compared to the second film, uh, this was more emotional for me, but every bit as skillfully crafted and expertly put together and written and composed and acted and all that good stuff. So with that, that is the end of the official 30th episode of Cinescope. We did it, guys. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please take a couple minutes out of your day. Rate review subscribe on itunes and if you've already done that then how about you share it with your friends as well people who like movies um, if you have feedback or ideas you can email the podcast at gmail.com and if you're interested in talking about movies then contact me and i will love to get you onto the show james where can people find you online well i'm on facebook as james hamrick uh i, I love talking about movies so anybody who wants to do uh, give me a friend request just to just to sit down and talk about films. I'd be up for that. But in terms of uh, actual presence with podcasts, uh, it is the the underrated podcast, and we are on iTunes as the underrated podcast. Um, we also have an email and Twitter and all that good stuff. But yeah, that's that's how you can hear all of my uh, sometimes unpopular movie opinions. What about you, Gabe? Uh, yeah, also on Facebook, if, if you want to chat about movies, feel free to friend me. And then, of course, the podcast with me and James, Underrated. The la last episode was a Book of Eli, and uh, if you want to go check that out, see what we're about, it's a really fun show. Yes, and uh, we're not going to stop at the second film of The Lord of the Rings. We are going to have you two back on to talk about Return of the King, especially, and then probably sometime down the road as well to talk about something else, whatever whatever the next big film for us is. So thank you guys so much for being on the show and everybody make sure to go check out underrated, whether you check out the episode with me or not, I don't really care. It's a great podcast and I'm sure you're going to find valuable content there. The best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. And then I'm also on Facebook at facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. All the show notes, all the contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Once again, thank you, James. Thank you, Gabriel. Having you on the show has been amazing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 30. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 31. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm -hmm.